Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Welcome to today's podcast, where I am so very excited to be joined by Dr. Kleinplatz. And Dr. Kleinplatz, welcome. Thank you so much for giving your time today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation centered around your wonderful book, Magnificent Sex. And I'd love to share a little bit about who you are and your, your background through your bio. Dr. Peggy Kleinplatz is professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Ottawa in Canada. She is a certified sex therapist and educator and her clinical work focuses on eroticism and transformation. Her current research focuses on optimal sexual experience with a particular interest in sexual health in the elderly, disabled, chronically ill and marginalized populations. She also has an international training for therapists working with couples experiencing low or no desire and this enhances the quality of the couple's sexual and relational intimacy. Dr. Kleinplatz has edited or authored five books, including the book we're here to talk about today, Magnificent Sex, Lessons from Extraordinary Lovers. And when I, I, I got the book, Magnificent Sex, I just devoured it. <laughs> it's spoke to so much of what I experienced in my practice and how I work and you know we live in a world where the mainstream media often has the cosmopolitan type you know how to have better sex with this technique that technique yet so many people are having dismal sex and people are often feeling there's something up with them because they're not having great sex or that they're experiencing low desire, when actually it's the type of sex that they're having. And as you pose the question in the book, how do you create the type of sex that's actually worth wanting? And one of the many things I love about the book and your research is that you bust so many common myths about how sex should be and your work really elevates the standards of what is possible through the lessons that we can learn from these extraordinary lovers who are having magnificent sex and you know this is available for everyone if if this is something that they want for themselves i'd really love to hear from you how you got into this specific field of work 
Thank you. Um, I've been dealing with individuals, couples, and groups with sexual problems and concerns for many years. I think one turning point came one week in 1989 when I had three individuals referred to me in the course of one week, all of whom were survivors of child sexual abuse and all of whom were being referred for low desire. Mm-hmm. And by then I was already in the habit of asking people about their best sexual experiences. Mm-hmm. And when I asked these three individuals about theirs, they all talked about occasions when they were in their teens, you know, making out backseat of the car stuff. Mm-hmm. When they were just so turned on, they couldn't wait for the next moment. Moment of what? Well, that wasn't exactly clear to them, but the feelings of belonging were quite intense. And that was very striking to me because not only was there no genital contact, they were still fully dressed. Mm. And if those were the moments when they felt most sexually aroused, most filled with desire and longing and anticipation, that made me wonder, what what is this thing called sex that people mm-hmm. long for? And mm. I've spent quite a long time redefining sex with my clients in therapy clinically. But in 2004, I was teaching an undergraduate class, and one of my students kept raising her hand and saying, well, how do you know this? How do you know that? You you know, you say what makes sex great is this or that, and uh, that's not what it says in Cosmo, (laughs) and that's not what it says in Vogue, and that's not what it says in Maxim or Men's Health. You know, what makes you think these things are true? And I said, well, if you're that interested, why don't you apply to graduate school. Ask for me to be your supervisor. So she did. And that was Dana Menard, now Dr. Dana Menard. And sure enough, she did her master's and her PhD. And my clinical interest and my research interests then converged. Mm. And from 2005 to 2012, we studied couples and individuals who are having really really uh, impressive, optimal sexual experiences to find out what their secrets were. Mm, Wow, I'm very glad you did. (laughs) And so when you did this research, I'd love you to share a little bit about the type of people that you selected for the research in terms of age and and, and differences. Sure. Well, based on my clinical work, I had some hunches as to who we should attempt to recruit. And for one, I wanted to study people who are, in some sense, the most mainstream, but also the most marginalized, old married people. So people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s who had been in the same relationship with each other, though not necessarily monogamously so, for at least 30 years. And what made me choose those people? Well, for one thing, I'd seen a lot of couples who had had perfectly satisfying sex from their 20s through their 50s, but somewhere, as they got older, 
they started to develop medical problems, which interfered with their ability to function sexually the way they used to, and yet they wanted more still. And this meant having to revision sex itself. Having learned so many wonderful lessons from these clients, uh, yeah, let's, let's reach out to people who've had to redefine sex itself in order to have the kind of sex worth wanting as they grew older and older. And that made our research team think, wait a minute, who else has to revision sex? And so we interviewed people who were otherwise outside of the heteronormative box. So LGBTQ individuals, people into BDSM and kink, people who are consensually non-monogamous. So, yeah, we had quite the range of people who self-identified as having fulfilling sex who demographically looked quite different. Mm, wow, fantastic. And what did you find from speaking to all these people? Well, we've now done quite a few studies. The first study was about what are the qualities or the components that make for really magnificent sex. Our next study was on uh, what are the things that we can learn from the extraordinary lovers. And the one after that looked at whether or not optimal sexual experiences differ between, for example, men and women, the straight versus the LGBTQ, the vanilla versus the kinky, and so on. Um, I can tell you about much or as little of this as you would like. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear the, I'd love, one of the things that really struck me about the, the research was the fact that you found so little difference between the range of people that you interviewed. I'd love you to speak to that. Sure. Well, in our first study that began in 2005, we began interviewing people with these extraordinary sexual experiences. And we found that the descriptions weren't anything like what you would read about in, um, <laughs> I don't know when your audience will hear this, but you and I are doing this in February. So that's <laughs> the month that coincides with Valentine's Day. And there are always lots of things in the media about how to spice up your sex life with tics and tri tricks and mm -hmm. techniques. And no, we found had nothing to do with that. It was about being embodied in the moment, being connected to one's lover, ethic communication, a whole variety of qualities, eight of them in, in total. And then in 2013, we inadvertently discovered that there were no differences, no distinguishing characteristics between the wonderful sexual experiences of the couple in their 80s who'd been married to each other for 60 years as compared to the 22-year-old bisexual uh, kinky dom with one slave and uh, two other partners. Their best experiences were indistinguishable. The qualities were all alike. Mm. Wow. 
I remember in the book it says that you you have all the transcripts with all the identifying features <laughs> removed and you could you wouldn't be able to tell the difference and that goes so against what we are led to believe through the media and different things about the differences between genders and what men like what women like um, so did that surprise you that that, that, that finding um. I'll give you a strange answer. Mm -hmm. I don't study bad sex where there may be gender differences. I don't mm -hmm. even study normal sex, whatever people mean by normal, which I really can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the high end of the spectrum, I guess it's not too surprising that our best experiences look so much alike. Mm -hmm that mm. there may be many different paths to the top of the mountain, but when you get there, the view is similar no matter who you are. Mm. So, yes, the media is replete with um, assumptions about differences between men versus women, and it's always versus. Mm. The young versus the old, the straight versus the LGBTQ, and we found that their experiences were indistinguishable, that there were no differences between, for example, men and women, and that people often said that the quality of the sex meant you were really with a peer mm -hmm. and that you were seeing yourself reflected in your partner at those peaks of erotic intimacy, which if you stop and think about it, it makes some sense. Mm, absolutely. And you mentioned the eight qualities that you discovered through the research. I'd love to hear you talk about those eight qualities. Absolutely. So the first of them, and first because it was very predominant, and because people often mentioned it earlier in interviews, were about being embodied, absorbed in the moment. So we often hear about people who talk about being distracted by their to-do lists or other trivial things that make it hard to focus on sex. Yes? Mm. Absolutely. And here, yeah, the quality of the sex that they were talking about was so compelling that they were completely and utterly absorbed in the moment. The second one is about alignment, connection, merger, being in sync with one another. And here, very often people had difficulty finding the right language for it, and so they borrowed language from physics. They talked about the energy between people that wraps around itself and each other like a blanket, uh, conductivity, electricity. Um, that feeling of two people becoming one that mm. generally mental health professionals don't capture nearly as well as the poets and the songwriters truly mm. the two hearts beat as one sort of phenomena mm. and the third one was about heightened empathic communication 
about people being able to not only listen and express themselves with words that were highly articulate regardless of academic background, but also touching each other in ways that allow an individual to really feel into the other's very being, penetrating the other person's soul, if you will, through touch, as well as allowing oneself to be felt while being touched so as to be known nakedly. Is this making sense? Is it sounding too touchy-feely? Oh, it's absolutely making sense. <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. I'll give you the opposite. You know how you feel when you're sitting in your doctor's office waiting for a physical exam or waiting for an injection or something else that's going to cause even mild discomfort and your whole body tightens? Mm-hmm. This is the opposite. This is where you allow yourself to be touched in such a way as to really be felt. When your whole body says, ah, you just breathe a sigh as you know that you're opening yourself up to being touched literally and figuratively. Mm. Uh, the fourth component would be a deep sexual neurotic intimacy. I found it curious that most of our participants didn't use the word love, but rather the qualities that make up love. Mm. A deep sense of caring for one another, um, knowing the other person really well, feeling your pleasure is crucial for my pleasure, deep liking. Um, the fifth would be exploration, emotional risk-taking. It's as if people were using sexuality as a vehicle for personal and interpersonal growth and adventure, which meant taking some emotional risks. It means I, I have to really trust you and I have to um, let myself be open to you. Mm. The next was about authenticity, being genuine, uninhibited, uh, allowing oneself to be known nakedly. Being yourself, feeling free to be yourself, being honest and unselfconscious. Mm-hmm. And if that's hard enough to do when you're alone with yourself in a room, it's even harder to do the next one. The seventh component is about vulnerability and surrender. So not just that I'm being authentic, but I'm being authentic while you're looking at me. Mm. while you're seeing me and touching me and coming to know you, know each other, while we're surrendering to one another. You have all of those, then that seems to lead to the eighth component. There's a feeling of peace, transcendence, 
bliss, even transformation. It's a healing experience where time just seems to stand still. And here, our participants tended to borrow the language of religion. We talk about a gift from God, and we would say, oh, you know, what, what religion do you follow? And they'd say, no, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist. I just mm-hmm. can't find the right words beyond those that uh, seem religious in their connotations. But it's not about some God out there. It's about discovering the divine within. Brother. Wow. Thank you for sharing. What a list. And so different um, than most people learn how to do sex in terms of the very goal-based performative sex that I certainly learned um, in my earlier years and many people in my practice learn. And, And so given these eight qualities and feeling the richness of these qualities, um, how are you now translating those into working with um, couples uh, and sharing it in terms of helping people move from some of the issues that you discussed, like low desire? Well, if your practice is anything like mine, in fact, low desire or no desire, uh, low frequency or no frequency, is the most common problem that couples come to see us about. I don't know yes. if that hundred percent true for you. Yes, absolutely. And I would, you know, prefer not to treat the quote unquote identified patient, but rather to think in terms of sexual desire discrepancy. We are in conflict because I want more than you do. But I'm going to be asking the question, what makes sex worth wanting for you? Mm-hmm. And even people who say, well, I've never had sex that's worth anticipating. It opens the door to what kind of sex would be worth getting all excited about. Mm-hmm. What, what can you imagine that would make it worth wanting? So I've shifted out of what's wrong with you such that you don't want sex to hmm, maybe low desire is evidence of good judgment. And what would be worth anticipating for you? How can we help you attain the quality of erotic intimacy such that instead of dreading sex, you begin to anticipate it even Mm -hmm. favor. I think that's such an important point because so many people feel there is something up with them because they don't desire sex. And when it's flipped in that way to say, actually, it's a type of sex that you're having and what is possible, what would you like what like you say what makes sex worth wanting for you and to explore that literally that it's just people's the relief people experience (laughs) from understanding that and realizing they're not and I often hear words like broken or I'm not uh I'm, I'm dysfunctional and all these different words and suddenly they're in a very different position of possibility so I think that point's really worth emphasizing yeah I mean, that's that's precisely the feeling I get with clients who enter my office, that they feel on some level defective. Yeah. 
um, for most of my career, I've had a very long waiting list. And I'm going to say six or seven months, mm-hmm. eight months. And it would keep me up at night wondering, you know, what what can I do to get rid of this waiting list? And I would call couples up after six months and say, Hey, I've got a wait I've got an opening on my waiting list coming up in only a month. You know, shall we book an appointment now? And they'd say, Thanks, but no thanks. We got divorced three months ago. And I would feel just terrible. Wow. So after we finished the first few studies in 2013, we decided that we would like to translate this into an accessible format and make it possible to take the lessons we'd learned from the extraordinary lovers and make them more available to more people more quickly. So we developed a group therapy approach starting in 2013. And that made it possible to see more clients more quickly and ta-da, eliminate my waiting list, which made me very happy. Mm. So we are now offering group therapy. We, we tried it ourselves for a few years first within the team. And when it worked, we began training people throughout Canada and the United States. And we've just trained some people in the UK and next month we'll also be training people in Ireland so Mm. it's an exciting time to be branching out and making what we've learned more accessible to more people more quickly and of course it's also much less expensive for Mm. individuals to seek a group therapy than for them to see a therapist so I'd love to know what lessons that you've learned from these extraordinary and magnificent lovers that would be useful for people experiencing some of the things like low desire that we've discussed and for people working in the field as well. Thank you for asking that. Um, So many couples come to us despondent, sure that what they have lost from the beginning stages of their relationship, the honeymoon phase, You know, that's it. It's over and it's hopeless. And I think we've learned some things that can give people hope. Mm. One of them is that great lovers are made, not born. And if you think about people who are great at anything, cooking, gardening, sports, uh, playing a musical instrument, it didn't just happen spontaneously. It required a great deal of time and effort, even devotion, one might say, to create the kind of excellence that really distinguishes, let's say, a great meal from a mediocre meal. Mm. I mean, for example... um, I'm a vegetarian. I've never actually um, had a hamburger at McDonald's. But I'm told, I'm told, that if you go into a McDonald's anywhere on earth, you get the same good quality of burger. And it's nice because it's predictable. McDonald's are all clean. But when you enter 
the home of a great chef, you can see that they've chosen exactly how to set the table. And time and effort went into creating a meal that you can begin to absorb before you even taste it. Smell it. You can see that the colors are just wonderfully appetizing. You put it in your mouth and flavors meld beautifully. You can tell somebody put time and energy, even love, into this little hobby of theirs, making food that makes other people feel grateful to eating. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. So think about the best kiss you've ever had, best time you've ever had in bed. The odds are pretty good you were with somebody who was putting a fair amount of devotion, giving and receiving pleasure. And that doesn't happen spontaneously. That's not a gift that one is born with. That's a gift that one acquires. It's a talent like any other kind of talent that requires discipline in order to get there. And it's no coincidence that we were interviewing people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. It took a lifetime for them to reach the point of maturity where they could be honest with themselves, let alone each other, to be able to say, you know, here's what I want. I want enough, so I'm going to take the risk of being honest with you. Maybe we can both be on that journey together. And that, I think, is connected to another one of the major lessons we got from them, that extraordinary lovers, the people that through our research we've come to call extraordinary lovers, are less willing to settle for mediocre sex. Mm. So in their teens, you know, their perception of really wonderful experience was uh, being able to have sex at all. Oh, isn't it great to get laid? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Wonderful. And in their 20s, you know, getting laid without your parents walking in. Mm-hmm. And maybe in their 30s, getting laid without their kids walking in. By their 40s, there was a shift. Uh, is this all there is? Is that the best we can do? Is that all I can ever hope for? And they began to question. They became less willing to settle for mediocrity more willing to be honest in order to start to experience what they were fully capable of, to experience their own erotic potentials being realized and fulfilled. So it's not surprising that it was later in midlife, let's say their 50s, began of the caliber of sex they'd only dreamed of previously. So being less willing to settle is important. And that's so contrary to much of what we read in the literature, which tells couples, you know, stop with the starry-eyed dreams. You know, be realistic. In long-term relationships, sex isn't going to be so great. And I think that's dribble. Yes. We need to help couples increase their expectations and be less willing to settle if they want to experience the stuff that dreams are made of. Wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that and hear 
because so many people have the belief that sex is just going to fade out as they get older. And this totally proves uh, without a doubt that it doesn't have to be that way. And I love what you say about people taking the time to create great sex as you would a gourmet meal because it's when we when we when it comes to sex we don't really have a culture of practice it's like we're meant to just show up in the bedroom and put on this performance um, yeah anybody if it's an incredible philharmonic orchestra or a musician they put hours of practice in to be able to to have that level of mastery so I, I love that you share that. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to ask a question on, you talk around uh, the sort of um, couples often have, feel that sex should just be spontaneous. And if it's not spontaneous and doesn't happen, there's sort of something up with them as well. And, and what you're saying is it takes planning and it takes commitment. Big time. So. One of the most deleterious myths, I think, that almost everybody has acquired just watching mainstream movies or even worse, um, pornographic depictions, is that sex should be natural and spontaneous. And I, I am not complaining about mainstream movies or about porn per se. I mean, they're entertaining forms of fiction. But for so many people who don't get good sex education, they think that what they're watching is a realistic representation of reality. Mm. That's where we run into trouble. So that every couple that walks into my office says, ah, oh, we're so wistful for the early honeymoon phase of our relationship when every time we saw each other, we just fell into each other's arms. Well, <laughs> it may have looked that way, but I like to take them back to those early days when they were coming to know one another. And it may have looked at 8 p.m. as if they were just falling into each other's arms effortlessly. But I'd like to take them back to 8 a.m. when... They began preparing for the day ahead and for the evening that would follow. And they tidied up their bedrooms just in case they brought their partner home. They may not have done the laundry, but they at least hid the laundry <laughs> in the hamper. They may not have done the dishes, but they would hide their dirty dishes so that when they walked in, their home looked welcoming and inviting. And then they went off to work or went off to school and did whatever they needed to do during the day, but spent the day also priming the pump by calling each other or, depending on their generation, they may have texted each other during the day and said, I'm really looking forward to tonight, eager to see you, hope you're having a good day, thinking of you, can't wait, whatever. And then the end of the day, they would quickly go home separately, shower, and shave or groom and wash their hair and then throw the dirty clothes with the graying underwear with the elastics that are 
fraying. Put that away and put on clothes that made them feel attractive in their own eyes. Maybe some black, silky underthings and product in their hair and maybe some cologne or perfume or aftershave that made them feel yep i'm at my best i'm at my best for you for tonight mm-hmm. so that when they finally saw each other after 12 hours of preparation they were able to create the illusion of ah, we fall into each other's arms natural and spontaneous <laughs> nonsense they spent 12 hours preparing to create that illusion. Mm. In long-term relationships, you can't pull that off anymore. You just can't do it because you're together. And that means that we need to redefine romance, not in terms of natural and spontaneous, but I value you and I value our relationship enough. Put in time to prep for you. And yes, we need to redefine romance in terms of Letting go of the illusion of natural and spontaneous, but rather of saying, I want to be with you enough so that I'm willing to create an entire day's worth of anticipation. And then, when we're together, we'll both know that we were willing to create the conditions wanting together. Mm. Thank you for articulating that so beautifully it's such an important point and are there any other lessons that you'd love to share that you learned from these extraordinary lovers i thought one of the most interesting ones came about rather unexpectedly beginning of each interview we got everybody's demographic information age relationship status socioeconomic background, health status, ability or disability status, and almost everybody identified as healthy and able-bodied. And then slowly over the course of the interviews, we would hear people making reference to conditions that you and I probably would not think of as indicators of being healthy and able-bodied. For example, people who had histories of cancer and the treatments that went with it, mastectomies, hysterectomies, prostatectomy, heart disease, strokes. And then we were in the middle of one interview where someone said, uh, can you hold on for just a second? I just, um, I, I need to go get my oxygen. I can't breathe. And Dan and I were like, what do we do? What do we do? Do we call 911? Uh, he said he was okay. Is he in the middle of a heart attack? I mean, And then he came back and we said, what happened? And he said, nothing. I just had to go get my oxygen. And we said, "Uh, what for? You said you were healthy. And he said, well, I I have uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but as long as I have my oxygen, I'm okay. We said, well, you you didn't mention that. Uh, And isn't that an obstacle for sex? And he said, no. Uh, A lot of barriers to great sex for able-bodied people occur as they hold themselves to standards that get in the way of open-mindedness and experimentation. And another older man who said, if there were a disability that restricts one's access to sexual fulfillment, I would say it was a disability to the energy or the imagination. Like, 
light bulb went on for us. That not only were aging, disability, and chronic illness not necessarily obstacles to sexual fulfillment, but they might even be an asset towards optimal sexual development to the extent that people were willing to use these changes in their health as opportunities to revision what sex could be. And it was really extraordinary for Dr. Miner and I to have the opportunity to do these interviews with people who were teaching us so much. That's an incredible story. Incredible. And it's often those times in life, isn't it, whether it's health or to help change in health conditions or aging, menopause, all of these different transitions in life that many people experience that these questions come up of what's what how else can we do this? What's possible? And for some people, that's the point where they sometimes give up because they don't know what's possible, but you're sharing all of these extraordinary lovers who have found their ways through and what a incredible um, blessing it is for everyone to hear these stories of what can happen when you revision sexuality beyond the sort of goal-based model that's the predominant model we, we see in the world. What else, what else do you, would you say are some of the key lessons? I'm loving hearing some of these. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Barry and Emily McCarthy. No. Um, they have written a book called Rekindling Desire, mm -hmm. in which they talk about disappointment with sex as among the most common causes of low desire. And if it's true that great lovers are made and not born, then disappointment doesn't have to be the end. It can be a new beginning. Mm. It can be not a symptom of a sexual disorder, but a signpost towards mm. which way do we need to turn in order to discover what we really want. And it means that we need to turn within and be honest about what we can only glimmer in our dreams. So many people say that, you know, they barely have fantasies. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll ask them to go back to moments when they were filled with the desire that is no longer present. Some people will say, well, I can barely remember that. and I don't have sexual desires. I don't have sexual fantasies. And... I can usually help them find something, but it means asking the questions in many different ways. So, for example, I might be asking them to go back to moments in their lives where they felt butterflies in their stomachs at the thought of the next time I see that person. And it need not even be desire for quote-unquote sex that they're remembering. You have, did you have, um, 
Charlie Brown yes. Peanuts in the yes. UK? <laughs> we did. So I just recently rewatched the Charlie Brown Peanuts Valentine's Day special that I first saw when I was a kid. And Charlie Brown is sort of floating on air, thinking about the next time he'll see someone that he refers to as a little red-haired girl. And I think it's very cool that he never even names her. She's an icon for him. And sometimes I'll be talking to a client about some moment when they were 13 and where they realized that they got a locker next to this other kid. And the first time they saw this other kid, it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm so lucky that I got a locker assigned next to so-and-so. And like, ah, oh, that other person said, hello. And then I said, hello. And then I spent the rest of the semester making sure to accidentally, on purpose, run into each other when we each had to get our books for the next class. And I got again to say, hello which was good because I couldn't think of anything more to say. I was that much entranced. And my clients all have moments that they remember of that kind of what some people refer to as crushes or puppy love and where their bodies were just filled with excitement. And they'll say to me, yeah, of course, everyone's had those experiences, but what does that have to do with sex? And I'll say, <laughs> forget the word sex. You do have fantasies. You do have moments that you recall with vivid clarity and fondness of wanting more. Only what that more looked like was not at all clear to you. And you need to welcome that back. You need to welcome the moments of wanting more without it being confined to wanting more genital contact, which wasn't what you wanted then, isn't the focus of what you want now. Let your imagination soar to what it would take to make you feel alive in your partner's embrace. Start with that. Have I wandered too far afield? I'm no, it's lovely to hear because I, it's such an important point that people have an imagining that having a fantasy must look like a scenario with a script and a start and end point and be so elaborate. And, and I, I find the same with some great questions and some curiosities. Everyone has some wonderful memories or some lovely thoughts or imaginings. They just don't label them in, in that way as a fantasy, but they're the clues to look for, aren't they? as to what it is that lights you up, what it is that makes, I, there's, a, there's a lovely phrase used in the book, what, what is it, um, the kind of sex that makes you want to glow in the dark, <laughs> which I think is such a great phrase. And it's building, oh, it's building those clues to who you are as an erotic being. And, and so, so that's just a great illustration of the places that you, can explore for if anyone's listening to explore what are the things that have brought you alive in the past and what do they tell you so thank you for sharing that my pleasure and any other key lessons there's some wonderful wonderful things here well 
One of the important lessons came from the question that we kept getting in the early years of our research when we began presenting our research and publishing it. Our fellow academics would say to us, well, this is all very interesting, but you're talking about some extraordinary people who became extraordinary lovers. How is this of any use to the rest of us? And if extraordinary lovers are made and not born, then we were left with the empirical question, is anyone capable of enhancing their sexuality or is this only for extraordinary lovers? Mm -hmm. And it's when we began to imply it empirically by taking couples who were referred to us for treatment of sexual desire and frequency problems and we began to apply the lessons from the extraordinary lovers that we learned the most important thing of all. That yes, even people who have not had sex with each other for years are capable of improving their sex lives. And so it was very exciting for us to be able to develop this eight-week group therapy and to find out by 2016, hey, this really works. And then, of course, the next question was, well, does this only work because we've now spent almost 10 years immersed in this research and we really know this? Or can we train other therapists as well into how to do this clinically in group therapy? And will it work for them too? And so we trained people. We trained therapists internationally. And then we compared whether or not their groups turned out to be as effective as ours. And lo and behold, it turns out that not only could we benefit from the lessons of extraordinary lovers, but so could other people. Mm -hmm. So could other therapists. So could their clients. And that when we offered it in group therapy internationally, lo and behold, even people who were distressed by their miserable sex lives could improve their sex lives qualitatively enough to create the kind of sex that's worth wanting. Mm. So the cure for low sexual desire is desirable sex. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's just wonderful to hear this rippling out into the world because people's expectations of how sex is going to be are so low in, in so many cases and the body of work that you've researched and, and, and are still building and creating is really taking out a new message into the world um, which is just so important that you can learn to really improve your sex life and to hear that you're having these experiences with people who haven't had sex or great sex for years. I'm sure so many listeners are gonna be maybe surprised, but also really grateful to hear, to hear that story um, because like everything, it's, it's the commitment, the devotion, all of the things you mentioned earlier on in our conversation and the willingness to show up and learn um, that can make this possible. So thank you for sharing that. And, you are now also taking this out to a project working specifically 
to with couples facing cancer. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yes. So we had an article that came out on um, our group therapy being successful internationally. Uh, it came out in the Journal of Sexual Medicine in 2020. And we got a phone call from uh, a sexual medicine colleague from the Netherlands. I'm going to screw up his name, but Dr. Vid Genotin, who said, hey, if this is working, why aren't you offering it to people who probably need it the most, couples who are dealing with cancer? And that had never occurred to us. So we began training therapists in working with couples who are facing cancer. And for your listeners who are interested in finding such therapy, they can go to our research team's website, optimalsexualexperiences.com, and find the names of the therapists internationally who are trying to help couples deal with the fallout from cancer. I mean, fortunately, physicians are finding more and more treatments that extend people's lives even when they're facing cancer. But oncologists are generally too busy saving lives to also help couples deal with the fallout in terms of their sex lives. Just a simple example. Usually when people are in middle of chemotherapy, they're told, you're going to be very thirsty, so make sure not to get dehydrated and to drink a lot of water. Yes? Yes. But those same people are rarely told, um, not only will you get thirsty, but your vagina will get really dry, so make sure to use special, extra thick, extra moisturizing lubricants, or your vagina is going to get really sore if you attempt to engage in penetrative sex. And after years of not being told, hey, your dry vagina is not a reflection on low desire, your dry vagina is a reflection on chemotherapy, they and their partners may assume she's lost all interest in sex, whereas mm-hmm. in fact she may be very subjectively turned on but won't be lubricating because of the chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So years of that can leave couples feeling quite distant from each other. We want to help even couples who are facing cancer to reclaim their capacity for sexual delight. We can't do anything about the cancer. We aren't oncologists ourselves, though we do now have oncologists on our research team. But we are nonetheless offering group therapy for couples who are facing cancer. Mm. Wonderful. And I I remember speaking to some couples at a conference years ago around this and and how the whole sexual aspect of of, um, life isn't, isn't discussed at these points. And so to have this projects I'm sure is going to just be so profound for so many people and just so lovely to hear how this work is 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 a life of its own and extending out to other people who need it so thank you so thank you thank you I appreciate the encouragement Mm, you're so welcome so to finish up is there anything else you feel you'd like to share with my listeners before we close today just how grateful I am to you for inviting me here today. It's been a delight talking with you. Thank you so much. And 
thank you so much for your wisdom, for your time, and you mentioned your website. So just to repeat that, the www.optimalsexualexperiences.com, where you can find out all about your work and also for people who might be interested in training with you as well. And I'll put that in the show notes. And I cannot recommend highly enough your book, Magnificent Sex. And I will also put a, a link to that in the show notes as well. So thank you so, so much for your time today. Uh, very much appreciated and wishing you a wonderful rest of the day. And the same to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.